Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Okay, guys. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the season eight of the Productize podcast. This is the podcast where innovators, geeks, creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. And our mission is to inspire people to impactful action. My name is André Marquet, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm talking with Sebastian Priori, VP of product at Unbabel. Sebastian is the vice president of product at Unbabel, a company that is removing language barriers by blending artificial intelligence with real-time human translators. As a long-term technology aficionado, Sebastian enjoys building products and business, bringing together people, technology, and information. He is passionate about leveraging data insights and has a hard-earned experience across a broad range of disciplines to create value for customers and companies of all sizes. In this episode, we're going to talk about Sebastian's interests and why he advocates that companies should review the OKR methodology to facilitate strategic discovery in order to create meaningful conversations within the tech teams. So welcome, Sebastian, and thank, thank you. you. Um, where are you joining us from today? Uh, I'm joining you from the Unbubble Tower, our new office in uh, the center of Lisbon next to Marques de Pombal. Um, and this is now one of the many towers we have across the globe with hubs, uh, you know, from Berlin to London, San Francisco, New York. So big shout out to all the Unbabblers across the globe. Right. So you're VP of product at Unbabble, um, which is a company mm -hmm. that I have personally uh, been following since the very first days when, you know, Vasco Pedro, your CEO, co-founded it with Sofia and Joao and, and everyone else. So... Yeah, that was back in 2014 or so when they got into the Y Combinator. Can you tell us the story of how you actually joined the company? Uh, sure. Um, I was actually based out of London at the time. I was working for a company called One Fine Stay, which was sort of luxury Airbnb. And we'd gone through an acquisition and two merges. And I was just looking for a new gig after four years working there. And one of the recruiters I was working with put me in touch with uh, Joao, who is our co-founder and CTO. And that started very casually, a sort of, you know, one-to-one -one conversation on Zoom already at the time. And then before we knew it, one hour became two hours. And within a few days, you know, I could tell that there was something nice about that conversation. And Joel got back to me and said, what are you doing next Wednesday? And within a few days, I had to organize a trip to Lisbon. I came here for a full day of discussion, met all the teams. And I had this really great, warm, fuzzy feeling on the back of that. You know, it's this sort of really long day where you leave at four in the morning, come back at two in the morning. But there was something behind it. And so in reality, from that point onward, it just took a week, an extra week, week and a half. Talked to some of the investors, talked to some friends around moving. You know, after 20 years in England, it was a big jump to kind of uh, move to, to a different country. But my wife could tell, you know, there was something in my eye. You know, I really, I really like the people. And I thought there was something really special about it. And I think the onboarding process is what really got me completely convinced that this was the right opportunity for me because I joined at the retreat three years ago. So that almost to the day, this is my third anniversary at Unbabble. Mm -hmm. And I could tell from being there that there was a great culture in the company. 
you know, you take a lot of risks when you have an interview on both sides and then you actually make it real. And so when I got there, I met a lot of the people. They were smart. They were, you know, nice people. There was a real um, dedication to our customers. We had great customers, great backing. I mean, all these things made me feel this is as good as it gets. And sometimes it's hard to appreciate it, but truly you have a, a, short, you have a, a real shot at the title. And I think this is as good as it gets anywhere. You could be in Paris, Berlin, or London. This is the kind of company that's going to change the world. And I wanted something big that I could, you know, throw myself into. And I found just that at Unbubble. Yeah. And that's that's uh, an excellent segue for my, my next question, which is you've been Liz living in Lisbon for three years now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, back then, maybe three years ago, Lisbon was not as, um, you know, a tech uh, such a popular tech destination as it is right now, or arguably mm -hmm. a little bit less. So I guess that's, um, that's you know, it might be a, a good time for a quick balance. Uh, what do you like about the city? Um, how how are you, you know, inside the tech scene and so and so on? Yeah, I mean, on the tech scene specifically, obviously with Web Summit and a lot of startups now, I think the ecosystem is getting bigger, a lot more mature. You have more mm -hmm. people from all the disciplines. You have had a few success, uh, you know, stories with with really good companies out of Portugal. So I think that's been really picking up. And you know, I, I love the idea of making a sort of you know, European Silicon Valley out of Portugal. You have the sun and the tech combined together. So I think that works really well. Uh, the interesting thing about Lisbon is that, and like what I expected, because I'd only seen the airport and, and the office when I took the job, I'd never been to Portugal before, and it feels very much like home. I mean, I'm originally from Nice in the south of France, and there are neighborhoods like Camp de Ric that really feel like it, it's the south of Europe in, in the wider sense of the term. So it's kind of Mediterranean in that sense with the sun and, and the warmth, but at the same time, it felt like it was, there was something Atlantic about it. You know, if you compare Spain with Portugal, like, you know, the culture is not the same. It's still historical. There's a lot of things in there, but it somehow felt even closer to us after 20 years in England. I think it's almost felt like, you know, there was a bit of that Atlantic spirit in, in Portugal, which we very much liked. Yeah, maybe um, it's the, the Celtic heritage. Yes, that too. That was just for, for fun on the side. But, you know, I think it's a great place. And truth be told, this is, you know, we keep talking about outcomes in the world of products. And for me, like all these things are amazing. I love having a weekend that feels like a holiday. You know, that's a big change. But the real outcome is, you know, not having to commute an hour and a half both ways. And that means that I can have breakfast and dinner with my kids every day if I want to. And, and that is truly what has changed our lives. Now, truth be told, the only thing that remains is, you know, speaking Portuguese, because unfortunately or fortunately, and Babel, um, you know, it has English as its default language, international language, which, which makes a lot of sense and allowed me to really ramp up much quicker than if it had been in Portuguese. But obviously now it means that that mission of removing language barriers feels very real, you know, so that, that's the next step for me. Yeah. So... Look, you, you told me you're a French national and we really want to dig a little bit on, you know, our guests' youth days because mm -hmm. that's really the early beginning of each, each one's journey into mm -hmm. technology, into their future life, I guess. So um, it seems that the French upper secondary school system is a little bit different from the Portuguese one, but um, here... Um, kids are kind of forced to go into an area of interest uh, when they're very young, 14 years mm -hmm. old, um, in, in the case of the Portuguese system. I'm curious, at what age did you choose to go into uh, STEAM? Because you ended up going into a very much STEAM course, like you ended mm -hmm. up doing a, a master's in, in, in mechanics and so on, so in engineering. So what, what took you? Were, were you, you know, already uh, very much into it when you were a kid? Or were you inspired by someone? I mean, so, so it's a mix of things. Obviously, the, the French system is very much about, uh, you know, 
teaching you a, a specific discipline, a specific topic. And that feels quite formal. I think that's the heritage of, you know, the, the sort of uh, 18th century and a lot of things behind it. But it's a, it's a very specific philosophy of teaching, which is, for example, very different from, uh, from England, where it's very much about the growth of the child. And as long as the child grows to be a functioning adult, you know, the, the discipline is just a component of that. It's not just that. So I think there was definitely a change there. And uh, in that sense, I was always in STEM just because I was more of a scientist in some ways. But the French curriculum is very much generic until quite late. I think you have to wait until typically until you're about 15. And then you have three years of specialization. And, you know, because of me wanting to do aerospace, and I can explain how I came to that, obviously that was the obvious and, and, and preferable way to, to kind of get into the sector. So there was very little choice at this point in time. It's just, you know, given the choice, I wish it would have been more applied. If anything, from my personal uh, preference, I would have started doing those things in a lot more detail very early on. You know, I knew from the age of 12, I wanted to build planes. So I somehow felt that, you know, I wish that the whole curriculum had been geared to that. You know, I could have spent more time on the things that, uh, you know, uh, were very much related to aerospace to be more prepared for the outcome, which is ultimately you can function in a working society, you know, doing just that and making a living on the back of that. And instead of that, I, you know, kept doing a lot of, uh, of disciplines that had very little to do with what I wanted to do on the way out. And so you always had attention of the benefit of having a generic education and at the same time, you know, trying to specialize and really, you know, get to, excite, to, to be excited about what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess, you know, nowadays we discuss a lot, the shortage of talent and has, mm -hmm. you know, as a tech company, you definitely struggle or I know that you're struggling like, like any other tech company for, yes. you know, quality talent. So how important do you think um, STEM areas are in the future of this technology companies in education system early on providing people into that direction? Because arguably, you know, it's, you can, but it's very hard to become, uh, you know, a good programmer when you're out of the, the system already, right? You end up, mm -hmm. you, you could, but, you know, it, it's very hard to become a, a good AI engineer, very hard to become a good, you know, rocket science engineer. So um, how, how do you do that? I mean, it's, it's I mean, the, the how is, is, is a different question. I think, you know, the, 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 the reality of it is that, we live in the age of machine and science in, in many ways. And so I think this is where the STEM stems from, if you think about it that way. You know, we need to interface with the machines. We need to have a deeper understanding of things in order to unlock the next level of innovation. So obviously having that sort of scientific rigor, that understanding of models and everything that goes with that, you know, mixing theory and practice is very important. So there's no question that STEM had to come back to the forefront, but as much as any other discipline, it's just, you know, it's, you know, like you had business in the 80s and 90s, you know, STEM kind of came to the forefront in the beginning of the, of the 2000s, and now it's there to stay, obviously. But uh, what's interesting is really that move from STEM to STEAM, you know, like really like adding the, the arts, and I think it feels like one single letter in a big acronym, but I think there's a lot more behind that because obviously as a product person, the moment I think about arts in that sort of applied product world, I think about the creativity side of things in a product designer. You know, so how do you combine that? This is not something that is in that sense detached from STEM. This is something that is a complement to STEM. And I think this is where you get the real value of all these things, which are, which is, you know, not doing things in isolation, but trying to connect them. And I think this was also my problem with the educational system, which is, you know, I remember this amazing feeling being in a master's where finally I could realize that there were patterns between different disciplines. And you could see how the different disciplines were connecting between each other. 
And I think the problem is when you think about the product team, you know, it's, it, there's the difficulty of getting to the, the, the mastering your craft in itself. But then once you're there, you have never been prepared to work, you know, as a product designer with an engineer, with a product manager. So there's a lot of things that you don't do. And I think this is where there's a real opportunity from a, a curriculum point of view, which is to actually have combinations of different topics. So for how much your major, and that feels very American. I think that's one of the things I learned from, from studying in the US where you can have a major, which yeah. could be engineering or any of the STEM, but then you know you can complement that major with a bunch of minors and you can choose them to really add value to that. And so I think integrating that within the main curriculum will be the future. And so in that sense, it's all about diversity and inclusion because the moment you're designing your product, you have to think obviously about the user. User means psychology, means experience, means delighting. You know, all these terms actually mean something that has no place in, in a STEM course. You, know, you, you won't have inspiration as part of the mathematics, despite the fact it can be really beautiful. But you know what I mean? It's not thought of in that way. And I think that's the opportunity because you know, I like thinking about the team in STEAM. You know, it, it's really about that. It's more about how do you bring like a cross-functional team? How do you bring the key skill sets and that you need in order to deliver the outcome. And the moment you think about it that way, then you need to have those different perspectives. You know, yeah. you know what about ethics? You know, that's something that should be obviously very relevant. We're all thinking yeah, about the, the social dilemma, very relevant. You know, uh, ethical AI is obviously the heart of our considerations. How do you transfer meaning? So all these things are things that you're just not prepared for. So you mm -hmm. come out of university most of the time, you have, you know, the methods, and, and those methods are actually normally quite old. You know, they take a bit of time to get to the, the, the lecture room. And mm -hmm. so all in all, you feel, it always feels like you're quite ill-prepared for the world of, of, of real work and how you apply your craftsmanship, you know. And I think that's what you learn in the first years of your career, whereas I think there's an opportunity to bring that, you know, further upstream and earlier in the curriculum. So in your case, you actually started training yourself in mechanical industrial engineering. And mm -hmm. I, I love just the, the name of your two theses. Um, one is, uh, you know, your master thesis, Raman scattering of hypersonic reentry flows in the high enthalpy TCM2 shock tube. And your PhD is influence of acetone pyrolysis on P-lift measurements in highly supersonic mixing layer. So this might, might sound uh, <laughs> rocket science because it is actually rocket science. But my question is, so you went on a PhD in aerospace with a thesis that sounds even, you know, more aromatic. So, yeah, which is, you know, regarding, um, I guess, if you might want to tell us a little bit why did you do yes. that, but then why didn't you actually go into, you know, aerospace company like SpaceX and you actually started mm -hmm. your career as an e-commerce uh, consultant building websites. Yep. You know, for me, that's just like having... <laughs> just won the Nobel Prize and then deciding to go work for McDonald's. So how come? Um, so let me take your two points separately. The first thing is, yeah, obviously the thesis sounds very complicated, but that's just because you have to be very specific about what you do. But, you know, like I did two masters and a PhD. And, and so that's why you have three very hermetic titles. But the point is, like in product management, very much at the heart of it, you're solving problems. You have to be very pragmatic about what you're doing. And so... If I think about one of those three problems, you're thinking about, okay, I want to send a capsule to Mars and I want to make sure it can re-enter the atmosphere of Mars and then come back to Earth without creating any damage. Because obviously there's an engineer behind who is supposed to design the thickness of the skin around the, the space shuttle. And so in order for you to do that, you need somehow to make measurements to understand how hot it's going to get, you know, what reactions might be taking place. And that's actually where the experiment is because once you have understood that you need that, how do you recreate that? So what you do is, 
you take a combination of gases that seem to be close to the atmosphere of Mars, you put them into massive, uh, massively high pressures, and you release everything onto a, a scale model of the of the the capsule, and then you suddenly have you know a few milliseconds to make your measurements. And that's when the laser comes in because there's only very few things that you can use to make those measurements in that amount of time with that degree of accuracy. And so basically all those titles are giving you exactly the same answer, which is basically the heart of it is you want to make sure that you run some experiments using a laser to study a specific configuration. And on the back of that, you're going to have data that you can then use to calibrate your models and calibrate your simulation. So you can ultimately get to the design you want. The rest is just, you know, words, <laughs> but the heart of it is just that. And this is something I was always trying to keep that multidisciplinary side of things, as well as something that is very applicable, that has a real impact. So those projects there were about going to Mars, about the wing designs of the A3AT, about, you know, um, scramjet uh, rockets going at Mach 5. You know, all these things are actually very practical. Those are things that are flying today. And I yeah, think but, this is something you, my, you my, my point is you, you ended up not working on those yes. areas. Has but that's the other part. Right? Because so what happened there? Well, you know, you find yourself, you, you know, I, I discovered aerospace engineering when I was 12. I had this revelation one day, you know, looking at a picture of an experiment and thinking, this is amazing. This is everything I like. It's fast. It's exciting. Yeah. It reveals the meaning of nature. You know, why wouldn't, what wouldn't you like in that? And it took me 18 years to get there. I'm, you know, 28, 30. I get my PhD. I've done all of that. And suddenly it, it felt like a real disappointment, a real loss of direction, you know, in many ways. One is because I kept seeing the same 20 people in a conference in Reno, Nevada, it, that my group of people was like 20 guys across the globe. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to do that for the next 40 years of my life. And then aerospace industry was also struggling. You had obviously the advent of the simulation, which meant you had less fundamental research, less experiments, less, you know, modeling in itself. So there was a lot of challenges there. And the last point was, also that cynical notion of you know, seeing all the other PhDs from, from Cambridge going to work in the banking sector. And then you're thinking, but what's the ROI of that education? Because it's taken millions probably to train someone like me to get to that pinnacle. And now, you know, where is it going to? Because one of the main problems we don't talk about is that it feels like being a priest because suddenly you have to finish your studies, you know, you're hyper-qualified. And at the time it was not rewarded in many ways. You know, you were still on 25K. And you could stay there and you know, take you 10, 15 years to get to 50K or anything like that. So all these problems really made me feel like, okay, how am I going to apply myself? I want, you know, I was originally an engineer in the sense of building things, in the sense of having an impact, changing people's life. And what I was doing felt very remote from that. And so at this point, it felt a bit like a crisis, in all honesty, because you're thinking, how do I reinvent myself? What do I know? How can I apply myself? And if I don't want to go into banking, you know, what is the path there? And so I've been done. Did you so ever much... consider applying to SpaceX or SpaceX was, was not around back then? There was, was no SpaceX. There was no, no SpaceX, AWS. Right? This was like there was, 2008, there was very little. I mean, I probably sound quite old at you know saying that, but you know, I did my studies in the late 90s. So at this point, you know, AWS is 2002, you know, uh, SpaceX is much later. Like when you were doing engineering courses, there was no, there was very little, there was some, but very little support for entrepreneurship. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't so easy for people to say, oh, I'm just going to create my own company or I'm going yeah, to join some exciting my, tech my company. rocket company. Correct. Despite the fact that we ended up running, you know, servers and switches from home. So we had that spirit. And I think in, in many ways now, this is also one of the reasons why I can also connect to some of the challenges of being a co-founder. And I haven't given up on the idea of one day, you know, maybe having my own company because yeah, we'll I think you this. learn a lot of the hard lessons, you know, what it feels like to uh, make a living. <laughs> what does it mean, you know, to satisfy your customers, to, to do all of that? And so I think it was very, 
transformational in that way, obviously, because it was a transition. It was very worthwhile, but it felt very difficult at the time because nothing is planned for that. And jumping ships, you know, like the whole work and, and, and education system is, is more driven to specialization. You know, you have a job, job description. It says, I want that, and it acts as a filter, and do you fit the filter? And those things are meant to be one person for one role for one purpose. So when you're like me, you know, where you're more multidisciplinary, it's very hard to know how you can reconvert yourself. And so it was a challenge, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm very glad I did it. Cool. All right. I was expecting you to tell me, no, I was, you know, I was approached by the, by the French Ministry of Defense to develop a new generation of scramjets or ramjets or, or no, you but... know, hypersonic missiles, because now Russia and China and, you know, yep. a bunch of countries are developing those and they are, they seem to be all the rage again. But, but anyway, you, you didn't I go mean, the, the dark side of the force. You went the you know the light side of but the it force. But it's a very important problem. I'm glad you mentioned it because I remember you know attending a presentation that I thought was super exciting. Everything I liked, you know, like it just looked the numbers were amazing. Super high pressure, super high temperatures, lasers everywhere, some crazy stuff. And I was like, this is for me. This is what I want to do for my masters. You know, and then you start asking a few questions to the guy, and before you know it, you realize that you're simulating the heart of a new explosion. So you have to actually, that's why I think I'm also very keen on, on ethics within research in general, you know, because we've learned better and we should be having that, that conscious, that awareness when we go into our decisions. Very well. And all right. So let's just maybe think a little bit about uh, the Celtic culture, which I found super interesting. So how <laughs> did you develop this uh, intense interest in Celtic culture when you told me like, where, where yeah. is that coming from? I mean, by luck, I guess, um, I had some, some Scandinavian friends of mine who were leaving after, after uni, and they offered me a small present, which was one of those, you know, Viking slash Celtic pendants. And I just liked it straight away, you know, the pattern of it, it was, as I always say, it really stimulated the two halves of my brain. You know, the sort of the symmetry and the interlacing was very much with my geeky side. At the same time, the proportions, the, you know, all this proximity between the curves, you really needed to have some sort of, you know, aesthetics into the design and so i really like the combination of both plus on top of that you know it just happened so that a few months later i was in scotland i found a whole collection of introduction books to celtic arts and you know being who i am i just find something i like and then i just geek out to my heart's content you know it, it's multidisciplinary you learn about dna about language about civilization history you know all of that about the craft and the arts and being a bookworm as well allowed me to collect my books you know having a good theme to, to basically build my library so that's that's something I still do to this day, not as much as I'd like to. So, you know, my Cintiq table doesn't get to see much action over the year. Now everything's taken by work and, and by the kids. But I think it is important every now and then to find ways to stimulate your creativity, to find something that really helps you relax at the end of the day, you know, something that is just complementary. And so it's the yin and yang, you know, it's like 2080 on, on all these things. Yeah, and, and in Portugal, we, we, we say that, you know, language is alive in the sense that it's constantly evolving. And at mm -hmm. least in the north of Portugal, they claim to have uh, Celtic heritage. Um, what have you wondered and explored about it so far? Have you traveled there? Did you check out um, any specific hint of that Celtic heritage? Um, I haven't had that much chance, especially with COVID for a year and a half. You know, we couldn't quite yeah, travel true. and we've been very respectful. So that, that's made it challenging. But I mean, I've done a few things. We went to see Tumulus next to Evora, which really looks like what you would normally find in, in England or in Scotland. So that connection is there straight away. Yeah, Portuguese um, Stonehenge, right? 
Yeah, exactly, and and it's quite it's quite beautiful and definitely worth watching. I know there's a lot of things in the in the museum in Jeronimo, which I haven't had time to, to go there. But I think the thing that gets me the most excited, and that's the link also to language, uh, luck has it. Um, you know, like uh, there's a lot of theory around where the Celtic culture came from. You know, and and historically the the hypothesis has been very much around the culture around sort of Austria and uh, Eastern Europe, and that kind of developed towards the Western Front, and that would have kind of stayed there at the end, and because, you know, Ireland and Brittany and Portugal were the last fringe of the deployment, that's why the language stayed there. But actually, the latest research, you know, crossing language and genetics and everything is showing that maybe the cultural, in the sense of the arts and the artifact in the region might have come that way, but the language itself might have actually really crystallized as a sort of lingua franca that was used by all the seafarers across the Atlantic Front. And that is the thing that would have kind of brought the real culture, Celtic culture together and then right. repropagated throughout Europe. So, so there language is actually a has few... a mimetics to the culture. Absolutely. It's one of the key conveyors. And that's why when Babel in many ways, this is the link to the meaning and how you carry things. So, you know, how can you really, you know, live religion if you can't explain, talk religion, think religion. So the, the, the language, the communication is essential. And so in, in Portugal, I think, from what I understand is you have the oldest stone monuments marked with proto-Celtic language. And so I'd be very keen to see that. I don't know if where, where it is exactly yet, but you know, that's in my plans. All right. Great. Uh, yeah. Have you seen that movie, uh, that science fiction movie where they find the aliens and they try to communicate with the aliens and then they have the scientist to... Oh yeah, which one? Of contact or something like that? Yes. Contact. It's I'm just trying. To I, I know the one. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a very recent one. It's like I think it's like 12, 2012 or twenty twenty thirteen mm -hmm. or maybe even more recent than that. Mm -hmm. Um. Anyways, uh, the point is language being really the foundations of the technology for that civilization, and by learning the language, she. she I mean, spoiler alert. Maybe maybe not. She learns to you know, travel and, and time and, um, and, and yeah, so, you know, I'm just trying to take stock of what, what you're saying of how language is such a foundational part mm. of culture that really makes you um, develop maybe mm -hmm. pretty much everything else on, on culture. I mean, wise. if you think about it, you know, in, when, when the USA were being formed, there was still a lot of representation from the old continent. So in terms of mm -hmm. languages as well, you had a lot of, you know, German speaking people, you had a lot of Scandinavian speaking mm -hmm. people and, yeah. uh, you know, French speaking people. And in the end, it turned out to be English. And obviously we have a very strong cultural association with the country, with the culture itself, with the words and everything that comes with that. But imagine if, you know, uh, the USA would have spoken German or, or, or Swedish or any other language you know how much influence would it have had on on the evolution of history it's really hard to tell i think that's what makes it exciting yeah exactly and english ended up being the, the lingua franca for the united states and and the name of the movie is actually arrival so yes if you want to check it out maybe you have seen it already so getting into product how did you start your career in product because that was not you know it was not from rocket science to now I'm doing product management. I think it took a while mm -hmm. in kind of doing e-commerce websites and so on. And have you always wanted to go into the product area the moment you you landed into IT and and software, or is this path kind of you know shaped by chance towards product? Well, a, a bit of both, I guess, more like a self fulfillment 
uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I, I obviously had some early exposure to the world of product, but in a very manufacturing and engineering setting. So obviously, you know, things as simple as a furniture or a spoon. You know, I always like the example of a spoon because the, the spoon is such a, you know, simple anodyne kind of uh, ex example. But at the same time, every, every everything about product management is, is already embodied within that because obviously it has a user, it has a usage, it has a form, it has a function. You know, you have to think about the choice of your materials, the, show, the, 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 the way you're going to actually create the shape of the spoon, all of that with the outcome in mind. So I think that was my first exposure. It just was not presented as product, as product management, but it was always something there. Yeah. And so after that, I, when I was working at Tocado, uh, sort of, you know, a hyper automated warehousing system for, for retail in the UK, sort of, you know, Amazon style, it, it didn't start that way. It was more about project management. It was more about, uh, you know, uh, the kind of thing that normally we, we look at now in the wrong way, sort of print to methodology. But that was because there was a specific purpose. All the projects were, you know, a few millions worth of, in pounds. You know, it would take a year, year and a half to implement them. You have to be very clear about your risks early on. So that's why the methodology changes. But the real turning point for me was I had what seemed to be a very simple uh, project on the side, which was about offering shelf life, guaranteeing shelf life to your customers. So if I'm a customer buying an avocado that comes from South America, from the moment we deliver it in your house, how long can I you know, trust that this avocado is going to stay in perfect condition? And obviously, you know, everything, I, I came from sort of back end of that conversation, more on the automation, the supply chain, the warehouse. But actually, as I progress into the project, I finally ended up, you know, talking about, okay, yes, but what about the user? How is he going to perceive that value? How is he going to even see? Is it a logo that kind of says that you have that guarantee? How are we going to actually test for the fact that it is working? Like, there's a lot of considerations that were only almost thought of as afterthoughts in, in the other methodologies that we were using. Absolutely. And so suddenly yes, I unraveled everything. And so it wasn't about software versus hardware. It wasn't, you know, ultimately you get to build your own pyramid. And it really felt clear to me at this point in time that there was the user at the end, that there was the problem, that there was the value. And the moment I had a few of those notions anchored, then I actually, you know, did more research and I linked to product management in a more modern sense of the term, digital tech, you know, with, with the early days of that, because we're still talking about 2007. You know, right. so at the point where it's still yeah. very much the fangs doing these kind of things. Absolutely. And especially here in Europe, um, the mindset changed a lot, right? Mm -hmm. For those that remember. So here at Unbevel, how what, what kind of technology are you using to actually um, help remove the, the language barriers? That's a good point. The technology, that would be a, a long list there, but I think it's easier to think about them as products. Um, but, you know, being a product guy, I can't help but start with the outcome side. So I hope you won't mind. I can happily take you through the technology after, but, you know, no, no, it's, 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 it's you about know, how people experience it. So lots in the first of people place, see, see Unbabble has a, you know, service, uh, mm -hmm. has, has, translation has a service platform, right? Yeah. Um, it has been like that since at least the first pitch I've heard about it back in back in the day, seven or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the question is, how has technology evolved towards making you guys more, um, you know, ROI positive? Is is technology moving the right direction? Is it mm -hmm. is it actually helping you remove language barriers now, two thousand and twenty one, yeah. more effectively than it was two thousand and nineteen or eighteen? How is that going? Yeah, I mean, technology is essential 
even at the heart of Unbabel, you know, beyond the fact that we, you know, we are a product company, but fundamentally it is at the heart of the, the business model, at the heart of the, the value prop for the customer. And I'm saying that because if you look back, you know, we come from a time where the language industry was basically mainly uh, made of language service providers. People that do project management, that you know, have a bunch of people available, that do translations for them, and it's very much like one document at a time. So just at the heart of it, if you think about disrupting that ecosystem in the sense of making it scalable, so you truly become that new layer of the internet where now you, know, you could you know, translate the whole of the internet, clearly that approach is not scalable. And the heart of that scalability mechanism, scalability play is very much the technology. Now, when you think about the technology, how do you deploy that technology? And I would say that our ecosystem is mainly composed of sort of three sets of components. First, we have the platform. Yeah? And this is the heart of where we started. This is where we could demonstrate that we could build translation pipelines made of different modules that would allow us to you know, use the machine to do some of the translation, you know, use some of the quality estimation, make choices on how to go about the next step. So all of that logic, encapsulating that logic inside of the platform is the heart of, of the translation layer as we've been calling it. But obviously that layer in itself can only be made available through APIs which works for some customers and some partners, but you know, does not allow the customer to really experience the power of the platform. And this is where we see the applications come to life. So we have one layer of customer applications, which is mostly split into two categories. Uh, we, we have what we call more like the sort of language operation admin console side of things, yeah, which is where you can in one place manage the whole ecosystem. And this is really the future of how language uh, operations will be managed at scale in the future. Um, and that's an interesting topic in its own right. We obviously have on the other side the integrations. This is, you know, customers with their agents and their people, whether doing marketing or CX, working inside of their business systems, they want to have that power at their fingertips. And so what we do is we also provide integrations into the key system, the key business system, so that everybody can experience the seamlessness of Unbabble. And this is, I always call it, the, at the same time, the most underwhelming and overwhelming demonstration. It's because it takes two minutes, it's so simple. But I think once you understand everything that came you know, below that, like the power of the platform itself, that gets then packaged into a very powerful in interface only to appear as a single button for an agent. And, and, and that building, that structure is very much at the heart of it. So let's get, let's get specific into an mm -hmm. example here. And I believe customer service seems to have been a, a, a good fit, at least for the last few years for you guys. So customer service, right? You are mm -hmm. a customer, you are doing customer service. Um, and which are the, the main companies that look for unbevel services right now? Yeah. I mean, typically they are large companies. Um, because they have language operations already at scale. Uh, either it's because they've been, you know, sort of a typical big player in the world or because they are experiencing very big growth or because, you know, something happens like COVID and now you need to unlock some new level of flexibility from an operational point of view. So normally they, are, they have people who have, you know, understand the value of language as part of the business operations and have mm -hmm. a, a real clear need for doing that and really taking it to the next level. 
So that's the kind of people that we normally talk to. And obviously they are very mature and very demanding. So that's, you know, the pros and cons of having the enterprise play, which is, okay, they might see the value and therefore be willing to pay for, for more. But at the same time, they're going to be very demanding and they have expertise in-house. And this is our job to really prove ourselves, you know, on the, on the harder side of things. And I think we've been doing that very successfully, which means that in practice, if you think about the kind of, you know, customers we're talking about, we're talking about, Microsoft, uh, Skyscanner, Logitech, Dashlane, you know, uh, we have customers more like, obviously the traditional customers also like Panasonic, also newer generation of customers like Get Your Guide about, you know, having experiences made available to you across the globe or war gaming. The, the gaming sector has been really interesting because obviously it's massively online. You have a lot of players and support is a huge consideration for them. Uh, so how, how, how many languages do you support right now? Uh, at the moment, we have about, uh, you know, in combination, it could be dozens uh, of languages, but we probably have about 30, which are the heart of it. If you look at statistically what the customer use, you know, there's about 30 languages that do most of the uh, the, the operations that, that we support at the moment. But obviously, every customer, you know, a lot of customers now are getting into also the sort of tail end of the languages. You know, because it becomes very expensive to support, you know, a specific uh, variation on a language or some language for a very small market. So being able to be nimble, to be able to both deliver the really high volume, you know, side of the spectrum, as well as the sort of more exceptional language is basically what we can provide. All right. I guess Celtic and Clinton not included yet in the package. <laughs> All right. So, um yeah, so you know, uh, I guess you work a lot with your CTO with Joel. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where my 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 question regarding technology was was coming from, mm-hmm. which is the role of you know has has the work has a team as you are a VP of product, you end up working a lot on a strategic mm-hmm. level with your peers, and I guess that's the CEO and the CTO. Um, before you actually go into more of a product leadership's practice how do mm-hmm. you um how do you work at that level uh inside the company how how do you I, I guess lots of the conversations before covid they used to happen you know maybe randomly at the water cooler kind of hey there's this new technology coming in or we're testing this or whatever the results are or the benchmark or whatever it was how is how, how are you keeping those conversations alive um inside your group of leadership here yes i mean that's obviously a challenge and i think you have to be very um, very aware about you know the, the value of those interactions you have to be you know mindful literally like thinking okay i need to stimulate those interactions otherwise you know organically and we've seen that with with the, the confinement it's very easy to, to kind of go f- from having three degrees of, of connection to very quickly having only one degree and just looking to 10 people around yourself and so that's been the side effect that a lot of people experience with the confinement and everybody being on Zoom. And obviously it feels less natural to just say, okay, let's just jump on Zoom and talk. And so you have to then be a lot more um, thoughtful about that and, and a, bit, a lot more proactive about it. And so in, in that amount of time, I think having a framework, you know, a simple thing like the process and making sure you have dailies, making sure you have weeklies, like you know, creating those touch points and, and keeping a bit of flexibility, but at the same time, you know, making sure that you have a critical mass of it that you can exchange. And that's the key thing. This is sharing in the sense of sharing new tech trends, as you were saying. This is sharing in terms of, you know, creating alignment between different initiatives about resolving issues. So I think the key thing is just contact in the first place, communication and being very, you know, deliberate, I guess is the word I was looking for about it. 
let's just talk, you know, and, and this is also your responsibility. It's not just going to happen by itself. So I think you need to have that extra degree. And then the second component is, you know, I think a lot of product people are very much around like understand how it should be and therefore want to kind of, you know, be clear about what we own, what we don't own. And there's a real topic around that. But I think where you start is very much as being a catalyst as an enabler. And, and that's also why it's still very hard to explain where product fits because that's the nature of the role. You know, obviously there are things that we own specifically, but at the same time, I would say that the, the, the main value that you add because of that multidisciplinary profile is to connect the dots, is to connect the business to the product, is to connect the technology the engineer, engineering side of things to the product side of things. You know, so being able to make that happen in itself is so much work, you know, if you can do that, I think everything else comes from that because that's when you at the heart of it are helping each other, supporting each other, making sure you're working on the right things, focusing and delivering value for our customers. Right. So if you can create, if you see yourself as a catalyst, I think that you're safe as bet. That, that's also where, you know, OKR methodology is, is, is becoming mm -hmm. such a common practice um, in lots of companies and especially inside product teams or product leadership teams. So, what from what I understand from your current um, construct is that this model is still widely misunderstood. So my question is, why is that, and or at mm -hmm. least not properly implemented inside teams or inside companies? Yeah. And yeah, why, why do you think this happens? I mean, the, it's something I've experienced, and I'll talk about that. But you know, all of us can hear, you know, Marty Kagan speaking, you know, on, on YouTube, and you know, there's always or, this concept. Or a productized conference. <laughs> no, no, I know, but you know, the, the, the important thing is, like, in that sense, the you know, the, all the thought leaders would agree that you know, OKR uh, today is not necessarily delivering value. That people don't quite understand what's behind it, and that's why you know you should be careful about you know how you go into OKRs and why you're doing it. And I think. The reality is like nobody can deny that, uh, you know, despite having gone through training, making the decision, the typical rollout leaves people with almost like more confusion. You know, it feels like the adoption is not great. And it, it feels like you are left with no success criteria. When do we know that OKRs are working? Yeah, and, and I think that's what I've met in a lot of companies. Like we have OKRs, we are doing it every quarter, we're going through things, but it feels like, you know, even from the CEO's point of view, I'm thinking you've read all the books, you've talked to everybody, everybody sells it as being the best return on investment, the thing that's going to transform into Google. Why is it not working for me? And I think that people are not finding the answer to that. And you have, you know, uh, employees on the ground who are thinking, what is the value of that? And I think this is where the warning comes from. It's like, okay, you need to have quite a few things behind that. You need to understand where it comes from and you need to have outcomes and a lot of things. So I think fundamentally, yes, I do believe that, uh, you know, there is a need to better understand where OKRs came, come from, but also fundamentally understand why we're using them and how to use them. And I think that the methodology, the way it's pitched, or the way it remains in people's mind is just, okay, you know, I get something from the top that is just my boss telling me what to do. And then I'm going to think about what I do this quarter. And then I'm going to kind of package that into something, you know, but it feels like an afterthought again. And I think this is the main part that I think, uh, I think seems to be missing from that, which is it is a strategic tool. When you look at your OKRs, you should be looking at it as a sort of live version of your strategy, which is something that is very hard to see anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, you can have a, you know, a graph of KPIs that kind of tells you about the business model in some ways, but what about the strategy? Where do you formalize it? And again, you can have white papers, but you know, nothing replaces having OKRs. So I think that's why you understand that there's something potentially very important. But again, you, know, you are left with that sort of 
desperation in some cases or that frustration that you know it's it, I don't quite see the value I don't quite see the return of investment I think I'm a product guy I'm all about return of investment you know and I think this is why we you know I've come up with that sort of new methodology which is just a way to talk about the OKRs just a way to understand how we could use the OKRs to have more meaningful conversations and you have a new name for it Right. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> I, I had the, the logo before I had the name, you know, I'm more product design than marketing in that sense. Okay. So the name, you know, can be challenged. But I think the main point about the name is the fact that the names are confusing. You know, if I just say the O in OKR objectives, what does it mean? Because mm. is it really uh, something that is just meant to be worded? Is it meant to have a number in there? Because a lot of time you read it, it feels like a number, but in wording forms, or it's something I'm going to do, like, what is it? And so I think the, the meaning of the acronym itself is important. This is why when I talk about OZs, it was just a way to also be a lot more explicit about the sort of parent KRs. If I think about anybody building their own OKRs, I think that the first step that we miss is really that reflection when we are looking at the KRs that come from above, which is saying, look, guys, you know, this is what we like to achieve and that comes from the business plan and the forecast. And this is the shape in which we want to get. This is strategy as sort of, you know, fitness and fitness coach. Okay, we want to get into that shape. Now, how can you guys help? And then the way you have to think about it is think about like, what are the strategies I have in my backlog of strategies? What are the things I could be doing, you know, in order to move those different needles? And that's important because also it means that you can move more than one, which is actually even better because if you have one strategy that moves multiple, you know, parent chaos, you're probably doing better. And yet, when you look at some of the tooling, you can only connect to one objective or one parent chaos, the level above, which introduces a bias. So people think, okay, I need to cascade very linearly. And they miss that reflection at that point in time. So I think that's the first thing. I think we need to be more explicit about the chaos to really explain the why. All right, so OKR standing for objective and key results and OZ standing for- Standing for objectives, strategies, and impacts. Right. The objectives are fundamentally what you would choose as parent KRs. You know, this is the why. So these are the needles you're going to move at a higher level. That's why I call them objective because they feel like higher level, more like second degree outcomes, if you think about that way. I, I replace the O by S as the strategy because I think that we need to focus on the conversion mechanism. You know, what is strategy? You're going to basically, you know, uh, try to transform something that you're going to do into an outcome. So this is the output to outcome conversion. And that's super important. So how come this is just an objective? No, it should really be that strategy that you're going to work. And so I want, you know, when, when and, and Gibson Bidder that you were mentioning before the, the XVP of Netflix always talks yeah. about that when you have a quarterly meeting, like, you know, asking the product managers, what is your strategy? And that's where it comes from. What is the mechanism of value generation that you're going to be using and focusing on this quarter? And the moment you have that, then the third component, which is the I, the impact, is just in a sense the children care but I think about them into three categories. One is about change. The second one is about benefits. And the third one is about risks or constraints. And that is because, again, if you think about a strategy, this is about you implementing some changes in the hope that it will deliver benefits. And if you want to, it to be scalable, then you're going to have to make sure that all the risks have been mitigated. And so suddenly, just giving that extra degree of understanding means that if I'm building my OKR, I can now think, about, okay, what are the chaos I'm going to put inside of the change box? And literally, it could be a simple piece of paper. You know, if you think about the SWOT analysis, I have my four boxes and I have a title. That's the way I think about the OKRs. My title is my strategy. The first, the first box are the objectives, which are the parent KRs. 
The second box are the changes that we're going to implement, the scope in that sense, and what the teams will be working towards. The third box is actually the benefits, which is the outcomes, the positive outcomes I'm trying to drive. And the fourth box is the negative outcomes that I might drive if I'm, I don't pay attention. And so once you have that, this is the way to really bring up good conversations in two ways. Number one is because it means that now you can almost read your KR in a, in a meaningful strategy-related way. You know, in order to move those needles, which are the objectives, I'm going to implement that strategy, which I can be explicit about, which will mean that I will implement that change. And I should be seeing the benefits, which will mean that the strategy is successful, but it will only be scalable in the way of successful if I also have made sure that I have no, have no risks or no, no extra risks, you know, or the, the, the constraints have been mitigated. And so that means that already I can have in five minutes a very clear, concise description of my OKR and why I'm doing it, the outcomes, you know, how it's going to work in terms of value generation and all the different components. So can, can you give me a real example of yes. implementing this model in, I Absolutely. Don't know, try the, in Bevel, I guess? I mean, this is still very early days, so I don't have that many examples. But one thing we've done is, or that I've done as a way to socialize you know, the, 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 the framework was to look back at some of the OKRs and some of the initiatives that we did over the last year and a half. And last year, one thing we did, which was a great insight from, from Vashko, our CEO, which was to say, look, we know that with COVID and confinement, the activity is likely to go down because you know, big customers will also struggle in the travel industry. So you know, this might be the best opportunity we'll ever have to actually do some of the refactoring or enablement initiatives that normally you don't get a chance to do because you have so much pressure yeah. on the markets. And so we refactored our AI stack, we refactored our engineering stack, and, and we created that new product that we now have uh, since last year. And it's been amazing. But I think the architecture refactoring was a great example of us knowing how to write the OKR and yet not capturing it. Um, and, and for example, you know, that OKR fundamentally, you know, that strategy was about, look, we have an existing architecture, which does X, Y, and Z. We want to move to a new architecture. Now, if you look at the OKRs for that year, year and a half of work, most of the OKRs, most of the KRs in that sense, were all about, okay, I no longer use the old system. So it's like, you know, 100% of the new system, 0% on the old system. And you spend all your quarters doing that. The problem is once you've done it, it's like, okay, we're done. Great. But how do you know that the change worked? How do you know that actually brought value? And that was the real frustration in the sense that we already had that information because we did it for a very clear set of reasons. Number one is we used to have our chat product, you know, that was hitting around like 10 seconds for near real time. We wanted to make it one second which we did. And so we divided the speed of our, you know, the performance. Uh, we multiplied the performance by a factor of 10 in the six, first six to nine months. That's huge. That's why you're doing it. We're doing it because of the performance, because of being able to enable a new kind of feature set that we could have never done on the old architecture and a lot of benefits that could have helped in very different ways like efficiencies and, and NPS by having better instrumentation, having more modularity and all these things. And the point is we had those conversations we just never grasped that moment to capture those insights and actually write them as a strategic OKR. And this is why there is, I think, for me, a link to the, the strategy discovery because the OKR should not be thought of as being something you do at the end, almost like it's the quarter, now it's time for me to list what I'm going to do this quarter because that's already too late and that's already wrong. The thing you should do is the moment you start thinking about doing something, you should really think about all the different components, like what are the needles is going to move? So I'm thinking about NPS top line, bottom line, 
how is it going to impact those drivers? You know, which one is the primary driver, secondary, third, tertiary driver? What are the changes? Okay, changes we're normally pretty good at because you know, we, we think project management in that sense, but then what are the outcomes? And, and even in terms of the outcomes, the benefits, there's a whole discussion that you need to have in order to make that truly measurable because it's easy to say, okay, I want to impact, say, let's say top line, you know, but what does it mean for me? You know, what is that local leading KPI that I can use as a way to craft a KR that's really going to show that I have local benefit and that my strategy is working? And, 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 that, and the same for all of the other ones, because that is actually the heart of it. So making it tangible, actionable, and measurable is still very much at the heart of it. But now you can actually understand you know, all the hard part at first. You can just do by putting the different information in the different boxes, and then you can dig deeper into all of that. Which means that, and this is the heart for me of the meaningful conversation, when you review an OKR, mm. when you kind of, you've delivered everything and you're looking back at your, you know, during your retrospective, you now say, okay, guys, so we made the hypothesis, you know, that that strategy would work. And that was how we thought that the value creation mechanism would go. First of all, have we done the changes? Okay, if you hit 100%, great, but maybe you only hit 80%. And we know that some of the benefits won't unlock unless they hit the critical threshold, which might be 90%. So maybe you'll see zero benefits. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to understand how much of the changes happen. And then once you understand that, you go into the benefits. How much of the benefits have actually been delivered? Has it worked in the first degree of the, the term? But once you've gone that, okay, as, you know, is it scalable? Because this is typically like an optimization problem. I want to improve the speed. I want to improve the quality as long as the cost doesn't get out the window. Mm-hmm. I want to do X, Y, and Z as long as it doesn't delay the other initiative that you know, people depending on me. So there's a lot of constraints that you have to respect. And once you've done all of that, you could say, okay, my strategy has worked. But the last piece is, has it actually impacted the high level? Because maybe I made a mistake either in my model or there's something else disturbing that. or there's been a change in assumptions. And I need to confirm that that local leading indicator is actually correlating to the higher level, more lagging indicator. And I guess my, my, my question is, how is, how is that actually helping to, to create more meaningful conversations? And how are you measuring success, uh, you know, vis-a-vis OKRs or whatever methodologies you were using before that to, to know that this is working better? Well, I think strategy is fundamentally about making decisions. Yeah, we, you know, people say strategy is like the southern decisions you make every day. And I think this is, you know, empowerment in the sense that if you, if you understand that framework and it works for you, then I think that it's going to become adopted in the sense that that's the way everybody will talk about it, which is obviously a big part of the adoption and creating that alignment. But also it means that when you run your process, your retrospective process and, and those strategic conversations about where to go, like when you build a roadmap, like everywhere, you're always thinking about that and you understand, you know, what every box means and the interplay between the different boxes. So I think that in that sense, it's trying to empower the whole organization, trying to empower the leadership team, being able to think about high level strategies that might take more than a year and mm-hmm. sure that's challenging. Why would it be an OKR? Because already today it feels like an OKR is quarterly. If you're lucky, it might feel like yearly. Surely it can't be two years. But why not if your strategy is going to last two years? Then the one thing you do is every quarter, you're just going to chunk it down for mm-hmm. you know, each of the steps. But you know, I think it could be used for the leadership team as well as anybody between all the way down to the teams, you know, thinking about their own strategy, about their own OKRs and having those conversations because that's what I mean by decisions. 
you know, on the back of all of that, that review, that assessment of your strategy, the real question is, was it worth it? Was the return of our investment, was our effort worth it? Did we find something there? Did we find something new? Did we learn something in the sense that, right. okay, do we want to continue that strategy? Do we need to pivot? Have we learned something that brings up a new strategy we hadn't thought of? That's what I mean by meaningful conversation. And in reality, it feels like in a lot of the companies, you don't really, you know, you get to touch that, you know, scratch the surface of those conversations, but not quite. And I think for me, like just knowing that, I, you know, if I could hear around me, a lot of people saying, that's the change we implemented. That's why we were doing it because we're trying to hit NPS, mm -hmm. increase NPS, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of worked. You know, we saw the adoption increasing as a sort of local KPI, but not as much as we thought. The good news is that we didn't, you know, infringe on any of the constraints we had. Okay, great. Now, is it worth doing some more? Yeah, we learned that thing. You know, I think there is something more. We should push for it next quarter. Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of, that stream of thought in that moment, I think for me is really high value and I don't hear enough of it. Great. Look, Sebastian, there's probably an entire workshop that could be given on LSE. So that's actually what I'm going to ask you. Where should people, you know, go to if they want to know more about this uh, Aussie model? Uh, well, maybe productize if I get to uh, present it. Uh, but sure. more, more, more directly, I think, well, nowhere now because it's very much still a sort of internal, uh, you know, discussion to, to unbabble. But, you know, in terms right. of innovation, you, I think it's important you... to get... Have you published any, I don't know, blog post about it? Any Not yet. We paper? were in the process and this is when we started talking. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to, to start sharing with the community and, and mm -hmm. give a little bit back. Um, so, you know, but more to come, definitely. I mean, there's, a, you know, we, we're trying to have a lot more uh, blogs and, and, and contents being generated by the, the R&D team. You know, Joao Grasa, our CTO, has done a lot of a great job over the years and, and the AI side of things as well. But I think we've been quiet on the, on the product side of things because obviously we've been working hard at creating the, the product ecosystem and culture and everything and practices sure. that go with it. Uh, but I think now is the time to, to really be more vocal about all the things we learned, you know, whether it's about product with AI, you know, um, all these kind of conversations. So yes, that's the only way to know. And the Unbubble OKR, OKR, OKR that's how they how, how it was born, right? This uh, started with, I guess, Intel and eventually became popular inside Silicon Valley and ended up being what it is today. So thank you, Sebastian. Um, even if you don't have My any pleasure. specific um, pointer to Aussie, uh, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. It's how very simple. Sebastian at Unbubble.com. I'm always on top of my inbox and my calendar. That's what I do. So just get in touch, um, whether it's for, you all know, right. the OZs, any of the things we discussed, so, you know, career path and then experiences, always happy to share. We normally try to, we have Paolo Dimash, our VP of Innovation, who is also very much involved yeah. uh, in the sort of product tanks. So there's a lot of things, you know, there's a lot of spaces and the community is getting bigger. So if you want, just get in touch with me directly and I'll relay if I need to. Absolutely great. Thank you so much, Sebastian. And um, it's it's really been a pleasure to have you today with us. And I felt Thank like you. I learned so much on so many topics. And I, I'm pretty sure that um, the community enjoyed to stay uh, with us. And that's really what matters. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you. You too.